Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. I'd like to read these verses to you as kind of preparatory for everything that I'll be saying today. The title of the message is Abraham and Sola Fide. And the message was put together with the Reformation in mind. Verse 1 of chapter 15 in Genesis reads, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. In the Hebrew, where it says, This man will not be your heir, you can just put, No! (laughs) It's an exclamation. Don't go there, Abram. Verse 5. And he took him outside, God took Abram outside, and he said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said, so shall your descendants be. Then he, Abraham, believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord, how may I know that I will possess it? And so he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, and we've already discussed that. Let's pray as we go forward. Father, these first seven verses of this chapter are so precious. They explain to us in Old Testament terms what the whole New Testament proclaims loudly from the rooftops. And that is that it is only by faith that anyone could ever be reckoned righteous with God. We pray your blessing upon this sermon today. I ask as a speaker that you'd give me clarity that I would be able to present it in terms that are understandable and that will strike down into our hearts and strengthen those of us who have believed and open a door of faith to those that have yet to believe, that they too may be righteous. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity in Jesus' name. Amen. So, a little bit of review and background just to catch us up where we are in the life of Abraham. So far in the story of Abraham, we've covered his call from Ur of the Chaldeans, his delay in Haran and his arrival in the promised land. And we examine God's covenant to him, found in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and his subsequent altar building as a display of his trust and confidence in Yahweh. But we've also looked at his failed famine test, 
right? He blew it there pretty royally. But he did survive Egypt, and he recalibrated himself and his faith by returning to Bethel, where he first built his altar to Yahweh. In the latter part of Genesis chapter 13, there's an account of Lot separating from his uncle, Abraham, due to a lack of grazing land. They were both fabulously wealthy with flocks and herds and people. And Abraham said, Lot, I want you to look out over all the land that you see, and wherever you choose to go, you may go to, and I'll go in a different direction. So we see this (laughs) chastened statesman, Abraham, giving to Lot whatever he desires. Sadly, Lot chose to pitch his tents towards Sodom due to the value that he saw it would be to him himself because the land looked like the Garden of Eden to Lot. Abraham, being that chastened statesman, Statesman allowed the young man first choice. Said, I'll take whatever you don't choose. Now in Genesis chapter 14, there's a little bit of result that we see coming upon Lot because there's a war, a war of five kings, and Abraham had to go to the rescue of Lot because they attacked Sodom and they carried Lot and his family away. And so Abraham went and fought against those five kings and was victorious. At the end of chapter 14, there's a very interesting situation that comes up. This, this, this king of Salem, which is Jerusalem, Melchizedek, Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. Just very interesting, just kind of dropped right in there. It's carried on through the rest of the scriptures and you find out more about it because scripture is revealed to us in a progressive fashion. It doesn't give us everything all at once. And at the very, very end, we find Abram talking to the king of Sodom and he says, the king of Sodom wanted to give him a reward for helping rescue him and his people from uh, the five kings that he won the war against, and he says, you can take the booty, you can take your reward and and go your way. But Abram said to him, I will not take a thread or a sandal, thong, or anything that is yours for fear that you would say, I have made Abram rich. He didn't want anything to do at all with Sodom. He separated himself from him. Now Genesis 15 finds Abram reeling from the war that he had just fought and won. Look at the first words in Genesis 15. It says, after these things. Well, after what things? Well, after what he just went through, which was fighting this battle against these five kings. And I don't want to telescope from now to back then and say he was suffering from post-trauma distress, but maybe, maybe, He is possibly grappling with just how close he came to death and how quickly his life could end and with his life ending God's promises to him as well because he was still without a child. And all of God's promises in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, were predicted upon the fact that he would have a great heritage, 
following him. He's still without an heir. So his thoughts ran to one from his own household, Eliezer. He is so much like us. We are so much like him. He's a human being. And he's trying to put this all together. He's thinking, There's, something's got to give here because I'm not getting any younger. And I don't have any children. And all of this was not lost on Yahweh because he watched his friend as he was struggling. And so God immediately comforts his friend saying, do not fear. He knew he was afraid. He knew he was afraid that the promises that God had promised to him would not be fulfilled because he had no heir. And so God said to him, don't be afraid, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward will be very great. So he's reaffirming everything that he had previously told Abram and telling him, don't be afraid. Yahweh reassures Abram, telling him, don't fear, because Abram exposes where his fear came from. I'm childless. I'm childless. And I just came out of a war and almost lost my life. And before Abram can follow through with his plan to take care of the problem, I got this, God, don't worry about it. I understand now. I'll take one out of my own household, Eliezer, and he will be my heir, which was culturally acceptable, as is his future sin of going together with Hagar. Culturally acceptable, but not in God's plan for him whatsoever. And so Yahweh intervenes by restating his covenant with Abram and saying, No, but one who will come forth from your own body will be your heir. And then wait for it. Verse 6. Wonderful, wonderful verse 6. Then he, Abram, believed in Yahweh. And Yahweh reckoned it to him as righteousness. That's really what I want to talk about tonight, today. The Bible word righteousness means everything that God demands and approves, everything that is in conformity with the will and expectations and demand of an all-holy God. That's what righteousness is. A Bible dictionary, Vines, defines righteousness as, quote, essentially the same as God's faithfulness, God's truthfulness, that which is consistent with God's own nature and promises. It designates the perfect agreement between his nature and his acts. That is righteousness. This is the first occurrence of a vital and the sole condition for salvation. You see, we as human beings are without righteousness. And if God is to be just, he must punish us. If man is to be just in God's sight, God must reckon his own righteousness to man's account through man's trust in him. That is the way of salvation. Turn to Galatians chapter 3 with me. We're going to bounce around just a little bit in the scripture. But this is all based off of Genesis chapter 15 verse 6. Galatians 3 beginning in verse 6 says this. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, this is Paul, and he's quoting 
Genesis 15, 6, verse 7. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. And so then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So if you don't keep the law, you're cursed. And just for the sake of ease of understanding, just take the Ten Commandments for law here. Although it's referring to much more than that. Just the Ten Commandments. If you break the Ten Commandments, you're under a curse because of the righteousness of God. Because you don't meet up to the righteousness of God. Verse 11. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident for the righteous man will live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them, the law, the commands of God, will live by them, the commands of God. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Christ becomes a curse for us. Substitution, okay? Not us. Christ becomes a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would be receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. It repeats Abram's story, Galatians 3 does. And it shows that both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the teaching of entrance into the Christian life is through faith alone. It's not through works, anything that we can do. Now turn over to Romans, Romans chapter 4, and I'd like to read verses 1 through 5 for you. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he was, has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due him. And verse 5, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And then look at verse 9. In this blessing then on the circumcised, is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as a righteousness. So Paul is using Abraham and his believing God, which was counted to him for righteousness, as his arguing point for the Judaizers and any who think that they can do anything to gain God's righteousness. He says, may it never be so. And of course the Jews are saying, hey, we're circumcised. We're from our father Abraham. And, and Paul's argument is, I almost went into modern vernacular, dude, but he didn't do that. It's like, don't you understand? He believed and it was counted for righteousness before he was circumcised. In fact, circumcision was actually the right showing that he had believed. 
and not something that he gained righteousness from. It's faith alone that a person is credited righteous. But this vital truth heralded by the apostles throughout the first century was lost later on and only rediscovered during the Protestant Reformation. And that is what is proclaimed through the doctrine of sola fide, faith alone. The medieval church, what we understand to be the Catholic church, had turned to works righteousness. They had gone right back to the uh, Judaizers, the ones that were trying to gain their righteousness through keeping the law, through doing works of righteousness. And so my first point in the sermon today is that I need to give you the meaning of sola fide. It's very, very important. The Reformation's understanding of sola fide is carried out through the five solas, actually. And sola being the main qualifier, which means alone, sola, alone. You've got sola scriptura. That's scripture alone. The Bible alone is our highest authority. There is no authority higher than the scriptures. Scriptura, okay? Sola scriptura. Then we have sola fide. And sola fide means faith alone. And we are saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And of course, it is by grace. Sola gratia. Grace alone. We are saved by the grace of God alone. And that faith is placed in only one, and so we have solus Christus, Christ alone. Jesus Christ alone is our Lord, Savior, and King. And finally, when you take all of that together, you give glory to God alone, solia Deo Gloria. And there you have the five solas of the Reformation. We live for the glory of God alone. Why was man created? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's our purpose, right? Now, there are two controlling principles in the Reformation. If you haven't caught it, I've kind of moved from Genesis 15 now to the Reformation and sola fide. I want you to understand and track with me because I got so excited when I was studying this this week. It's so reassuring. Listen to this truth. The reformers proclaimed that justification by faith, sola fide, was to be regarded as one of the two basic controlling principles that governed all the theology that was rediscovered during the Reformation period. Remember, they forgot about it. The apostles in the first century preachers preached this truth. They held on to it. But then it was moved away from, especially in the 300s with Constantine and and just moving into flattening out. And the church became lost and began to believe in a works righteousness. And these two doctrines were literally the controlling principles and they spoke of them as such. That is, the authority of scriptures alone, sola scriptura, seen as a formal principle. You can write this down. This is, I'm sorry, this is an educational sermon, okay? Sola Scriptura is considered in the Reformation as a formal principle. It was the method and provision, the touchstone of truth. Sola Scriptura, the revealed will of God we have in the Bible. 
alone. And then secondly, justification by faith. Sola fide. That is the material principle. So you've got the formal principle being the word of God, the Bible, and material principle being justification by faith because it's determined as the substance, the stuff of which all the Reformation theology is comprised by faith. And these two principles were seen to be inseparable because no theology that sought to to simply follow the Bible could ignore what is demonstrably the essence of the biblical message, the gospel. These two hold the gospel in place. You get it from the word of God, and you obtain your personal relationship to it through faith alone. The two principles. Without sola fide, all would come toppling to ruin. In the same way, sola fide holds the very content of the gospel together. It's by faith alone. This will become clear as I continue. But Luther said this, Without the doctrine of justification, the church of God is not able to exist for even one hour. For even one hour. Now, you've got to understand, Luther, why is he a hero? Because he's this, this puny little man up against the entire Roman church and the Pope and the papacy. Incidentally, which was very linked to many of the rulers of that day. So he's going against everyone and everything and saying, you're wrong. You're wrong. And why did he have the guts to do that? Because it was of eternal value. He wasn't doing it just to be a rabble rouser, even though Protestant comes from protest, and he was protesting. He was doing it because he loved the souls of men And he discovered how they are truly saved. And it's not by works. It's through faith alone. Do you know that the crux of the problem that Luther discovered is all tied up in the misunderstanding and misinterpreted word? Just one word? Why was there so much confusion over the idea of justification that the church left its moorings of faith alone and went into a works righteousness mode. Believe it or not, it all came down to the misinterpretation of the one word, justification. Justification. Justification in Latin, which just happened to be the translation that the church fathers used because it was the New Testament in the Latin Vulgate that they saw this word justification. And in the Latin, the word justification meant made just. You can write that down, circle it. Made just. The medieval church, now the Roman Catholic church, taught that a person found justification by being made just. And this was accomplished through the sacraments of the church, such as baptism, communion, confession, etc. There are seven of them. Okay. Through keeping the sacraments, a person is made just, and then God can call them justified. And if a person didn't achieve that during their lifetime, they would continue the perfecting process in purgatory. That's where purgatory comes from. Because they were realists enough to realize men are sinners. Now they have canonized some as being righteous, and they are called saints. 
they obtained it during their lifetime. Always way after they're dead did they declare this, because if they were still living, they'd have to say they're sinners too. So they continue the perfecting to gain righteousness in purgatory until they were righteous enough and then God would then see them as justified people. That's why even when someone has died, Catholics will have masses said for them to take some of the the punishment off of them in purgatory to perfect them more. There's such a thing as called uh, the bank of merit, and I'm not going to get into that, but if you want to study something very interesting, just type in, what is the bank of merit in the Catholic faith? Very, very interesting. Now, Luther was truthful with himself. He didn't gloss over things. Today, we'd say he really overthought things, (laughs) and he really did, this poor man. Luther attempted to follow such teaching as the Catholic Church taught. In fact, he was a priest. But found himself reasoning, how can I stand before the holiness of my judge with works that are polluted in their very source? He knew he was a sinner, but he didn't know the way out. And he wanted to be justified with God. But he just didn't see how he could do it. As Luther studied the Greek New Testament, ah, not the Vulgate, the Greek New Testament, he discovered his understanding of the word justification was mistaken. You say, how was it mistaken? Well, the Greek term was different from the Latin term. How so? Because the Greek term did not mean an intrinsic change in the individual being made righteous through keeping works or the sacraments that would be being made righteous. Rather, the Greek term meant declaration, a declaration made by God. You understand the difference? One is that you're working to become righteous. The other is is that you are declared righteous. It's objective, not subjective. It was exactly what took place in the court of law when a judge declared a person to be in right standing before the law. He is not guilty. He is free. It's a declaration. Now, this changed everything in Luther's thinking. Just think of it. Justification, in this sense, is just the opposite of condemnation. When a person stands in a wrong relationship to the law, they are condemned by the judge. Condemnation does not make the person guilty. They are only declared to be so by the judge, and then punishment comes. So then, with the understanding, a person could also be declared righteous. We're not righteous according to our works, but rather we are declared righteous by God who is altogether righteous. And it's based upon the works of another, not our own works. Well, this is so good. This is what was encouraging my heart all week. Jesus Christ is the other. It is his righteousness. We are declared righteous because of his righteousness. This is exactly what Paul taught in Romans 3. Directly after Paul taught that the entire human race is in rebellion against their creator, 
and that there is no one who is righteous, no one who understands, no one who seeks God, because all have turned aside and none does good, no, not even one. He goes on to say in verse 21 of chapter 3, but, someday I'm going to write a book on the big butts of the Bible. (laughs) Catchy, catchy. They'll buy it just for the title, right? But now, apart from the law of righteousness of God has been manifested, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Does that make sense? Now, does that really make sense? Doesn't it click? Okay. For there is no distinction because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. But we're being justified, there's that word, as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So it's not a gift if you're working for it because if you work for it, then you've earned it. It's your due because you've done something to get it. It is a gift of God. Luther's understanding of sola fide. The material principle, the Reformation, was justification by faith alone. And as one confession of faith says it, says it like this, quote, faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is alone the instrument of justification. It is alone the instrument of justification. Another confession says, quote, we confess that our entrance which we have to the great treasures and riches and goodness of God that is vouchsafed or promised to us is by faith, by faith. Inasmuch as in certain confidence and assurance of heart, we believe in the promises of the gospel and receive as a gift, receive Jesus Christ as he is offered to us by the Father and described to us by the word of God. Now these ancient confessions were based upon the word of God found in Galatians 3 and Romans 4 that I'm talking to you about. And here's our link back to the study of Abraham in Genesis 15 because Paul wrote to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 3. You can turn there if you want and just kind of follow along with me. In Galatians 3, 6 through 11, he says, Even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, or it was counted to him as righteousness. And therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Those who are of faith. And the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and issue that those Judaizers in Galatia were having a conniption fit over, the Gentiles cannot just believe. They've got to be circumcised. They've got to be following through with the works of the law. And Paul says, no, 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 no. They're not, the Gentiles are justified by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations shall be blessed in you. And so then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham when they believe because Abraham is called the believer. For as many as are the works of the law, they're under the curse. And you understand what I said. Cursed is everyone who's on, abide, uh, who 
who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them, now that um, no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man will live by faith. And right there was Luther's answer to his sin-sick soul. He struggled so much. He was a monk. And he deprived himself, punishing himself, trying to gain righteousness with God. He wanted to be justified. And he, he, he went through all that ordeal for years, struggling under the condemnation of sin. And he finally understood it. He finally understood it. It's not what I do. It's what somebody else has done for me. Just as with Sola Scriptura, Luther coined the phrase external word. He said, it's this external word. It's, it's not what I think it means. It's what does it say? It's external. It's objective. It's outside of myself. Luther coined another phrase to get to the true meaning of his understanding of justification by faith alone. He called it alien righteousness. I love that. Do you know how freeing that is? It's not of us. It has nothing to do with our righteousness because we don't have any. What we have to offer is sin, sin, and more sin. Even our best acts are tainted with sin. But there's an alien righteousness. It means the righteousness of another that comes from without. And this is the righteousness of Christ by which God declares righteousness or he justifies a sinner through faith. We take him at his word. We believe him. Although it's very hard to believe, isn't it? That you are righteous in God's eyes. When Luther realized that, he said, quote, Therefore, a man can boast in Christ with confidence and say, Mine are Christ's living and doing and speaking. He is suffering and his dying are mine. Mine as much as if I had lived, done, spoken, suffered, and died as he did. A man could preach. Everything which Christ has is ours graciously bestowed on us unworthy men and women out of God's sheer mercy, although we have rather deserved wrath and condemnation and hell also. Through faith in Christ, therefore, Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness. And all that he has become becomes ours. Rather, he himself becomes ours. That is the gospel, people. That is the clearest way I could ever preach the gospel to you. And if you're trusting in anything else, anything else other than Jesus Christ and his righteousness being given to you as a gift of mercy and grace by a heavenly father who is completely holy, then you're not saved. You're not. And I don't care how old you are or how long you've been going to church, if you're trusting in something else and only you know that, Repent and come to faith in Jesus Christ. The way is open. Now I want to talk about the way of sola fide. The way of sola fide. Romans 3, 21 through 26, which I referred to, and 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God is both just 
and the justifier. If you turn to Romans chapter 3 with me real quick, and I want to begin in verse 21 and read through 26. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation or a satisfaction in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just, so God would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Man, just look at that. Apart from the law, there's nothing that we could do. We receive it. It's apart from things that we do. Righteousness of God through faith. Believing, not doing. Being justified as a gift. You can't work for a gift or it's not a gift. The redemption, to be delivered by a paid price. That's what it meant to be redeemed. It means redeemed out of the slave market of sin. It's as though God went into the slave market and he saw you standing on a slave slave block and he said, I'll purchase that one. And what he paid for the purchase was Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. A propitiation is a big Asian word, right? Like justification, sanctification, glorification, propitiation, all the Asian words. They're hard words. Propitiation just supplant that with satisfied. A satisfactory payment was made and what God paid for us in that, 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 that slave market of sin, what he paid to free us was satis- it satisfied his demands. It's a propitiate, propitiation because he is just. God exercised his righteous judgment on sin, which means he exercised that judgment on Jesus Christ. So therefore, he is a justifier. Jesus as God is the one who justifies sinners. He is a justifier, but he is also just. God is just because he exercised his righteousness in punishing Jesus for sin. So he is just and the justifier. Now turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There it is again. It's all over. He made him. God the Father made Jesus the Son. God's action, sovereign action, without any input from ours. It's free. He's totally free in doing this. He made his son who knew no sin. Jesus is sinless as a God-man without sin. And he made him who was without sin, Jesus Christ, sin. What are you talking about? Well, it does not mean judicially imputed sin. I mean, it does mean he judicially imputed sin to him. He declared him as sinful. Jesus didn't become sinner. 
on the cross. He, he bore the sins. He wasn't making Jesus sinful, but rather treating him as such. Just as he treats us as righteous. We're not righteous, but he looks at us as such. He declares us to be that. He declared Christ to be sinful. And Christ bore those sins on a cross. It's not a subjection or a subjective impartation of sin to Jesus, but a reckoning him to be sinful, exacting the punishment for sinfulness. And he says, so that, here's the purpose clause. It's why God did this to Jesus, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Again, it's judicially imputed to us. This is the doctrine of imputation. God imputed sin to Jesus so he could bear them for us and be punished for them to the utmost of God's wrath against all sin. Jesus bore it on the cross. And then those who believe that truth and humble themselves and say thank you to God, then he imputes righteousness to us, Christ's righteousness. You understand that? It's all in him according to the text. So when we say God imputes righteous, Christ's righteousness to us, it means that God thinks of Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, or he regards it or reckon, reckons it as belonging to us. He reckons it to our account. And that's exactly what Genesis fifteen six says. When Abraham believed God, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Jesus, as a sinless Christ, was imputed with alien guilt. There's that word again. It was a guilt he knew nothing about. He was not a sinner in any way, shape, or form. He was tempted in all ways like us, but without sin, right? So it was an alien guilt that came upon Jesus. And the believing sinner is imputed with alien righteousness. We don't know anything about righteousness. Now, the former is the basis of Christ being declared as a condemned sin bearer in order that the believer can be declared righteous in Christ. Both declarations are according to the eternal standards of a holy justice because um, which are born and are the judicial work of an infinitely righteous God. He's the one doing the whole thing. You see, that's monergism, Right? We did nothing for our salvation. All we do is receive it by faith. That what he's saying about us, that we're sinners condemned to hell, but if we believe that Jesus bore our sins on our behalf as a substitute for us, then he will look at us as righteous as Jesus Christ himself. If you believe that, you're saved. That's the gospel. Martin Luther said this, faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace, so sure and certain that a man could stake his life on it a thousand times, and so have many and all martyrs throughout the ages. You can stake your life on it. This is true because God is saying it. Now, when you understand sola scriptura, then you'll understand that it is only the Bible that really matters. It's only this book that we carry around with us. Do you read it? (laughs) Do you run to it when you have problems? Or are you kind of like Abraham? 
I got this, Eliezer. That's how I'll do it, right? And God just brings Abraham along step by step. Abraham fails. God picks him up and helps him, tells him, no, it's not going to be Eliezer. It'll be one born of your own body, and and I'm going to get ahead of myself. I'm sorry. One born of my own body. I got it. Hagar. It'll be born of my own body, and it was culturally acceptable, but it wasn't God's will. And God rejected that, for he always says, Abraham is your son, your only son. Abraham says that Isaac is your son, your only son. Doesn't even recognize Ishmael, although he pronounced a blessing on Ishmael. And we'll get to that eventually, some, some year here. This is so good. Your belief is only by faith alone, sola fide. It's by grace alone, sola gratia. It's not by works, it's a gift. And so then, all you're left is solia deo gloria. These are the elements of the gospel that come out from the doctrine of sola scriptura and sola fide. And we're right back where we started. You start with the scriptures because that's where it's all revealed. And that, my friend, is the crux of the Protestant Reformation. And is also why Abraham is not only the friend of God, he has that title, but he is also called the father of faith. Let that sink down. If you're questioning in your heart whether you truly have accepted this and believed this and received that gift of alien righteousness, please talk to somebody. Share it with somebody. And as I said before, I don't care how long you've been coming to church. It doesn't matter. This is an eternal, internally important thing. It's talking about your very soul and eternity. And you want to nail that down. Okay? The good news is it's all based on somebody else's doing the work. And you're just receiving it in gratefulness. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your word and the truths of sola fide and sola scriptura. And God, I just pray that you would make these truths just ring in our hearts and that you would encourage us, Father, as only you can. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.